Our Father, we are just so glad to come into this place today to gather with our family in Christ. To take a moment to pause from the chaos, the confusion, the brokenness, all the things that are going on around us in this world and to come into this place together to take a deep breath and to draw in the grace of God. We thank you that you bring joy to our chaos. That in you we have available unto us a peace that surpasses understanding and that you have never let us down. And so as we gather around your word today, we just ask for hearts that are open to receive, for minds that are clear of distraction. As we celebrate the fact that you, Jesus, bore the cross, that you beat the grave. So Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to your word? Would you speak your words through me today? And would you help us all collectively to be edified, to be built up in you? And would you receive glory and honor from all that's done? We pray all this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, and good morning. Uh, if I have not met you yet, if we've not had the pleasure to meet, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here on our pastoral staff, and it's my pleasure and privilege to be able to lead us in our time together of worship in the Word today as we continue through the book of James. If you're not there already, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be picking up in verse 19 today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one somewhere nearby in, in uh, the front of the seat or in the seat in front of you. Please feel free to grab that and take it with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to keep that. If you uh, have children, or maybe you've been around children. Maybe you've seen an exchange that goes a little something like this. I'll use just one example of any number of examples that could be uh, from from when time when we were raising our kids, and there's still one of my sons. One of my sons' jobs was to take out the trash, and so uh, more than once I can remember a time where I would have to remind him, and I'd say, "Son, I need you to take out the trash," and he'd say, "Okay, Dad." 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, the trash hasn't moved. And I'd say, son, I need you to take out the trash. Okay, dad. 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, and the trash hasn't moved. And finally, I say, son, did you hear me? I said, I need you to take out the trash. And what's the response? I heard you, dad. And so if you heard me, why didn't you do it, right? That's the life of parenting, right? It's a life of raising children and trying to help them to learn uh, to navigate things and, and all the, 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 the things that we face in our life that we have to do that maybe we don't want to do. And James really kind of gives us one of the a similar exhortation today, because so often we can hear from God's word, uh, but do we always do what we hear? As we continue in our study in the book of James, we've been taking a closer look at our lives in Christ, specifically looking at how our lives either confirm or possibly call into question our claims to faith in him. We've seen how genuine faith in Christ empowers us to remain settled and at peace in Jesus, even 
when our world is filled with the weight of brokenness, the effects of sin and evil and wickedness. We've seen how genuine faith in Christ remains confident that true wisdom comes from above and that all we need to do to appropriate that wisdom is to ask for it by faith. We've seen how genuine faith understands that our true value, our true worth, comes not through our possessions in this world, but through our position in Christ. We've seen how genuine faith celebrates that though the ultimate end of the pursuit of sin is death, the ultimate reward for faith in Jesus is eternal life. And last week, we looked together at how genuine faith rests in the reality that God can be eternally trusted, that he has done everything necessary to provide the good gifts of redemption and restoration in relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And so today, as we continue in our journey through James, we look at the next aspect of genuine faith, of what James will call true religion, as we see that the one that truly receives the implanted word exhibits a fruitful life in Jesus and experiences transformation that gives validity to their faith. And it all begins with being hearers of the word. Verse 19. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Immediately preceding this passage from last week, James has been calling our attention to the reality that we've been born again through the word of truth, that we bear the fruit of this new reality. Looking back at verse 18 from last week, James says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the next thing that James says is know this. He's emphatically saying, listen up. This is what it means to be a kind of first fruit of God's work of salvation. And he gives us first an example in telling us to reject impulsive emotions that breed resentment. James gives us a tangible example we can all relate to, be quick to hear and slow to speak. And why does James have to say this? Because we are so prone. Our natural bend is to do just the opposite. Try this. The next time that you're having a disagreement with someone about something, force yourself to not be developing your rebuttal to their weak and obviously flawed points in real time while they're talking. Instead, require your mind to hang on every word that they're saying, to receive both what they're saying and what's behind what they're saying. Evaluate your own actions, your own motives, even your response to what is being said through their lens. That is what it looks like to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And it doesn't even mean that they're correct in part or in full. It means that they're heard. Proverbs 17, 28 says it this way, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. 
Because what happens when we're not quick to hear, when we're not slow to speak, when we demand to be heard ourselves and we disregard the perspective of someone else? It leaves us open to being ruled by our emotions. As James here highlights, one of the most explosive of unruled emotions with the exhortation to be slow to anger. While the word James uses here can rightly be translated as it is as anger, it also carries with it the broader idea of any unrestrained or unchecked emotions. And James reminds us that when we allow emotions to drive us, we are not displaying the righteousness of God. And James isn't saying don't have emotions. God has given us the gift of emotions to be able to process life and its ups and its downs and have a way to interact with and process those things. He's saying, don't allow your emotions to have you. He's not saying, don't be angry. There are things that should anger us, namely things that anger God, like injustice and sin and evil and wickedness. James says it's the anger of man that's the problem because the anger of man is rooted in our sin our desires for self-fulfillment, our desire for demanding our own rights, for having our own way. And so just how are we supposed to do this, you might ask? How do we learn to be quick to hear? How do we learn to be slow to speak? How do we learn to express our emotions in a way that honors God? James continues by telling us to receive the implanted word that breeds redemption. By rejecting the filth and the wickedness around us, by putting them away, and by receiving the implanted word. Essentially, James is telling us to live a life that's patterned under confession and repentance under the authority of God's word. Notice the progression. In verse 18 from last week, we are brought forth by the word of truth as God through his spirit quickens our hearts and shows us our need for Jesus. In verses 19 and 20 this week, we begin to learn to deny ourselves, to put others' needs before our own. In verse 21 here, we realize where we are outside of Christ, the hopelessness of that, of being caught up in the wickedness and filthiness of this world. We confess our life of sin, we put that away, and we begin to align our heart and mind with God's, and then we receive the word with meekness, allowing the word to become implanted into our hearts and into our lives. And what does it mean to receive the word with meekness? So many times we translate this word meek as, or we think of this word meek as being weak or frail, but meekness actually carries with it the idea of someone who's strong and powerful and yet possesses a humility and complete control of that power so that the power available to them is utilized in an entirely appropriate way. It carries the idea of someone who's humble, someone who's teachable, someone who is able and willing and ready to receive. Just as James is exhorting us here to be quick to hear, to be slow to speak in our interactions with other people, we carry the same principle forward in how we approach and interact with God's word. In contrast to someone who operates with unrestrained or unchecked emotions, the meek person keeps himself or herself under control. They submit their desires, their uh, demands, their rights unto the word of God. It conveys that rather than asserting our right to ourselves, we humbly submit to and receive God's word and allow it to become the controlling factor in our lives. 
the picture of the word being implanted into us is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's what Jeremiah would prophesy hundreds of years before in Jeremiah 31. When he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. A lot of sounds each day, each week as we go through life pass through our ears and register as noise in our brains, but how often do we actually hear them? Because to truly hear someone, to truly hear something means it's received, it's processed, it's applied. And so when it comes to the word, how do we know we have truly heard the word? How do we know the word has actually been received and implanted? How do we know the implanted word has saved our souls? James says we become doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Verse 22. James continues, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so we see first the fruitlessness of looking intently and forgetting. Last week we saw in verse 16 that God will never deceive us. But we learn here this week in verse 22 that it's quite possible to deceive ourselves. How do we do that? By saying that we have heard the word, that we have received the word, and by not acting upon what we hear. Or by having our doing disconnected from our being. There's quite a bit of speculation among commentators about the metaphor James is using here about a man looking into a mirror, but it's quite possible that James is using humor or sarcasm to make his point. He's saying the one that hears the word but does not do it is the same as someone who looks intently at his face in a mirror and then walks away immediately forgetting what he looks like. And that's ridiculous, right? Because we, a mirror is a part of our daily life. We look into a mirror every day and I, I would venture to say not one of us have walked away from a mirror and can't remember our face. I have brown hair. I actually have a head full of hair. I shave it. Those people that are uh, naturally balding tend to be angry at me for that. Uh, So go back to the text. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I have brown hair. I have blue eyes. I have really small pupils. It drives Farrah wise crazy because when I go to the eye doctor, she tries to dilate me. and It's hard to get them dilated because they're small. My left ear sits lower than my right ear. You're going to be like looking at me intently now trying to see that. I have a freckle right here on the end of my nose that a lot of people mistake for like dirt or something. My wife keeps trying to wipe it off. I have a mole right here that I have to be careful not to hit when I'm shaving because when I do, it bleeds like crazy. How do I know this? Because for 47 years, I have looked at my face in a mirror. I know what my face looks like. I don't need a mirror in front of me to be able to tell me what my face looks like. 
It's been two hours since I last looked in a mirror today, and I could tell you all those facts about my face. And lately, as I look in the mirror, I see hair in places that it never used to be. (laughs) Why don't we forget what we look like? Because over time, we look intently into a mirror, and some of us more than others. We know our face. And so James is saying to look into a mirror and to forget what we have looked like. Number one, it's ridiculous, but it's also done nothing for us. If we genuinely did look into a mirror and forget what we look like, it would be fruitless. And in the same way, it would be just as ridiculous for us to say, hey, I read the word. I study the word. I look intently into the word. I am a follower of Jesus and yet walk away and forget what we have seen in his word, not living a life that aligns with those claims. And so here, mid-metaphor, James switches from the example of looking intently into a mirror to looking intently into the word. And this time, instead of experiencing the fruitlessness of looking intently and forgetting, James describes the blessedness of looking intently and persevering. James says the one that looks into the perfect law, it carries with it the the idea, the, the verb that James is using is used when someone's walking along and sees something that catches their attention. And it causes them to stop and stoop down and look at intently and gaze into to study and understand what they're seeing. In contrast, the one who hears but doesn't act, this person perseveres. They stay with it. They act upon what they see and what they hear. Notice the object of his gaze. James says it's the perfect law. Not a law of do this, don't do that. Not a system of rules and regulations and ordinances and do's and don'ts. He says the perfect law, the law of liberty. Paul describes this law of liberty in Romans chapter 8 when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, the law of liberty, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, not us, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. James says it's this person, the one who hears the word, the one who stops to carefully consider the word, the one who's moved into action and response by what they see, the one who looks not upon what he must do, but upon what Jesus has already done. This is the person that will be blessed in their doing. Notice here, church, that James connects our doing with hearing the word, with the word being implanted, and with our gaze being upon Jesus and his work for us. Because if we're doing, if our doing, if our activities, if our religion is in order to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn God's grace, to earn our salvation, our efforts fall flat. Isaiah says it starkly this way, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If you literally translated that, it would be a menstrual rag. But if our doing is in response to the law of liberty, 
perfected by Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of the law and its promises and its demands and our penalty for failing to meet them, then James says, then we will be blessed in our doing. Why? Because our righteousness is not based upon our own merits, but upon the merits of Jesus. In Romans 9, Paul says, what should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. James says we are to receive the implanted Word. When I think about that, my mind goes back to the parable of the sower. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, many of you are familiar with that. Jesus is telling a story, an illustration, a parable. And he's talking about a farmer who sows seed. And some of that seed falls on the path. It falls on hard soil and does not take root and become implanted. Some of that seed falls on rocky ground and is scorched by the sun because it doesn't have any depth of root. Some of that seed falls on soil that's filled with weeds and thorns. And as it grows, those weeds and thorns, which represent the cares of this world and the cares of this life, choke it out so that it becomes unfruitful. But some of the seed is implanted in good soil. And what does it do? It bears fruit. How do we know we have received the implanted word? Because our lives bear the fruit of the word that has been implanted in us. And in salvific terms, that fruit is not so much just about being conformed to a standard, but about being transformed by a savior. Because the hard truth is, church, if you do not have a word that's transforming you, you may just not have a word that has saved you. Being a hearer only will breed spiritual apathy and a manner of life that cheapens the grace of God by ignoring his word. Being a doer only will breed spiritual pride in a manner of life that spurns the grace of God by making a checklist out of his word. But when we become one who both hears and acts upon what he hears, we find ourselves being transformed by the word. Verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, stop. Pop quiz. James says, pop quiz. If you think, if you have a claim to being religious, I just pause here as we've been talking about uh, James' use of this word religion on our journey through James. We've drawn the distinction because so many make a, a false dichotomy of religion or relationship when we're talking about Christianity, saying Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But we've defined the fact that Christianity is, in fact, it's a religion. It's a religion of relationship. And James is saying, if you have a claim to this religion of relationship, if you have a claim to Christ, a claim to Christianity, if you say you are religious, I've got a couple questions for you. And the first is, do you have a life that exhibits control of self? Do you exhibit self-control? And it's a good question because self-control is listed as a part of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. And specifically here, James is going to touch on two points of a transformed life that is progressing in sanctification. First of these, James says, is a bridled tongue. It's interesting imagery that James uses here as we consider his use of the word bridle because 
I'm not sure what comes to all of your minds, but when you hear bridle, what do you think of? A horse. We think of a horse that has bit and bridle in its mouth. When we think of a horse, a huge, powerful creature that when it's wild is dangerous and can kill or seriously injure, but when tamed can be gently led by bit and bridle in its mouth. And if you are a follower of Jesus, our bit, our bridle, is the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that gently leads and guides us as we walk through this life. And James is telling us here that what comes out of our mouth, what consistently comes out of our mouth is a good indicator of what's happening in here, of what's going on on the inside. And I'm not talking about hitting your thumb with a hammer and a curse word flying out. But what's the pattern of your speech? What's the pattern of your life? Does your mouth consistently convey gossip or slander or anger or, or vulgarity? And not just our physical tongue, but how about our digital tongue? How do we communicate in our relationships with others? Husbands, how do you speak to or about your wife or your children? Wives, how do you speak to or about your husband? How about our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, the guy who cuts us off on the interstate? So full confession, as I'm preparing this message, going through this passage a couple weeks ago, Laurie and I are going to some friend's house for dinner, and we're on a four lane with a divided median that you can get into to turn off of. And I was in the left lane because I, I had my turn coming up here in a little bit. And I was going the speed limit-ish, uh, pretty close to it. And there was a guy behind me who was just in my bumper. He was essentially in my trunk. And that was all, I was already feeling it kind of well up a little bit inside of me. You know how it is. Maybe you don't, but I do. And so I turn my turn signal on. As right as I start to get over into the lane, a car from the other direction jumps out into that middle lane to, to be able to get into traffic. And so about halfway into merging, I had to kind of start merging back a little bit to not hit the car head on, and the guy behind me just lays into the horn. Obviously, I can't do anything, but he's, and a name for him flew out of my mouth. Not horrible, but maybe synonymous with donkey. <laughs> and immediately, I was convicted. In general, because I believe the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, but also because I'm working on this message right now and talking about bridling our tongue. James is going to come back to the tongue in more detail in chapter 3, but the short version here is that taming our tongue, our tongue shows us one test of our transformation, and are we experiencing ongoing transformation from the implanted word? And then more generally, James says, we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And this last part of verse 27, leads into next week as we get into chapter two. But for now, it suffices to say how much of this world system, how much of the prevailing worldview of our culture and the world around us is driving our mindset and our activity? Does your life push against the tide of our culture or are you being swept along with it? A couple of weeks ago, some of you know, Laurie and I had the opportunity to be in Cancun for a little bit for a pastors and wives retreat uh, we were there with Taylor and Emily, and we did come back. For those of you, I think Taylor mentioned that we might not come back. We did, obviously. 
but it's a beautiful place, absolutely beautiful. The water was incredible. I've been uh, to the Caribbean a few times, never seen water like this. Uh, I've, I took a picture of it and everyone I've showed the picture to says, that's not real, that's a filter. I'm like, I promise you, it's real and unfiltered. I was in it. And so the water was so beautiful, so we enjoyed it a lot. We would just go out and just go out in the water and just stand there and talk. Laurie and I, we would just hang out and, uh, and just spend time out there, really just overwhelmed with the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of the water. Uh, but if you've been in the ocean, you know what happens, right? We're just sitting there talking, minding our business. We're not doing anything. We're not going anywhere. We're not walking. We're not swimming. We're just talking. And every now and then I'd look up, and even though we started over there, we were now over here. I was like, man, we've really drifted a long way. And so we would have to turn and start to push against the tide, push against the current to get ourselves back to where we had come into the water at. A few minutes would go by and we'd look up and find we had drifted again way off from where we had started. And so we'd have to again correct. And church, that is our walk with Christ in this culture around us. Because if we're not paying attention, uh, if we're not intentionally seeking to keep ourselves unstained from the world, the current, the subtle current of this world will begin to pull us off course and shift us from where we entered into this relationship with Jesus at. And we'll find ourselves, if we're not paying attention, way off course. And when we do, what do we do? We turn. In our life with Christ, when we find ourselves off course, we come to the Lord in repentance and confession. And once again, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we turn against the tide and we allow the Spirit to lead us back to where we entered. Many, I believe, hold James uh, in our text today, but all throughout James as being hyper-focused on works. But James is doing nothing more here in our text specifically than emphasizing the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has been being challenged by the Pharisees, as he so often is, because his disciples were not following this rigid structure of do's and don'ts, this rigid set of laws and rules. And it says in verse 10 of Matthew 15, Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands is not defile anyone. So first, pop quiz, first question, does our life exhibit self-control? Second question, does our life exhibit concern for others? The example that James gives us here as he appeals to us through God's role as father in exhorting us to be his hands and feet is to use the example of visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. And the word visit that James uses here is found 10 other times 
throughout the New Testament. Most often, it's used to describe how God sent Jesus to visit us, to redeem us as a people to himself. Just one example from Zechariah's prophecy recorded at the birth of Christ in Luke 1. Zechariah says, And you, child, talking of Jesus, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the word that's used so often to talk about how Jesus has visited us in our affliction is the same word James uses when he calls upon us to visit the widow and the orphan. A widow, especially in James's day, but even in our day as well, in many cases, has lost her companion, possibly some of her means, likely much security. Orphans are want of parents to love them, to nurture them, to disciple them, to play with them, to celebrate with them, and to tuck them in at night. And over and over again, we see throughout Scripture God's heart of concern for the fatherless and the widow. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 14, Isaiah 1, Psalm 68, Acts 6, 1 Timothy 5, just to name a few. And I believe we see God's heart moved towards the most vulnerable in our society so often because in addition to his heartbeat for the least of these, they each represent where all of us are spiritually outside of Christ. Orphaned in this world until we are adopted into the family of God. Widowed by this world until we are redeemed as the bride of Christ. And James is using these two specific examples to help us evaluate whether our hearts are being transformed by the implanted word. Does your religion cause your heart to yearn for the vulnerable and move you to action on their behalf? We live in a a politically charged and polarized society where we're so eager to pick sides, to demean the other team, to those who emphasize the justification and the morality and, and champions life. James says, yes, true religion does that. And to the one who emphasizes compassion and justice and concern for the last and the least and the lost, James says, yes, true religion does that. And so instead of looking intently into the culture around us and taking our cues from our favorite news outlet, our favorite social media feed, and forgetting what we are called to look like as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, as the bride of Christ, let us instead look intently into the perfect law of liberty, secured and perfected by Jesus Christ, and be both hearers and doers of his word. So in response, James says, receive the implanted word. Allow the word to be implanted into your heart and mind because it's the implanted word that tells us of a savior that has died for our sin and rose again and secured our eternal life. James says, as we receive the implanted word, we are to respond by doing the word out of an overflow 
of the word that sent us, not doing to meet some standard, not doing to follow a checklist of rules, but doing out of an overflow of the transformation that's happening in our life because of the word that has been implanted. And in doing that practically, we're all called to reach out to the vulnerable, to reach out to those who are in distress, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather today to again, to come into this place, to hopefully be able to take a few moments and set aside the things that weigh down upon us in this life and just tune our hearts unto you. Father, we thank you so much for the, for the, the word that you have given us, not only the word that we hold in our hands, but the word, Jesus, who is the word. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to receive your word, to allow it to be implanted into our lives and bear fruit. We thank you that we have a religion, a faith that is not based on do, but it's based on done. And that even our doing is done out of an overflow of what you have already done in our hearts as you transform us more and more from one degree of glory to another, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for those that have reached out to us who have been the hands and feet of Christ in our lives. And we pray for the eyes to see, the heart to go after those, the vulnerable that are around us, that you would call us to go and display your love, your truth, and be the hands and feet of Jesus too. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the time that we have had to gather around it. We do pray that your word would not return void. We trust that, and we pray that it would have its full effect as you desire, as you minister to our hearts through it, through your Holy Spirit. And as we now, Lord, prepare our, our hearts for coming to the Lord's table, we just want to pause briefly and allow your spirit to do its work of evaluation in our own hearts. Show us, Father, if there's an area where we're not hearing the word. Show us, Father, if there's an area where we are hearing the word, but we're not doing it. Show us, Father, if we're doing out of a sense of trying to gain or earn something and not out of a transformed heart and life, out of gratitude and thankfulness for what has already been done. Show us, Father, if there are those around us that you are calling us to reach out to, to be your hands and feet. Father, as you bring these things to our minds, give us the courage, the strength to confess them to you, to repent of them, and to ask for the empowerment, the strength to walk in obedience. God, we know that confession is safe because of your grace and your mercy. And then we turn and run to you in confession that you run to us with open arms to receive us, to restore us, 
And we thank you for the eternal assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so as we continue in worship, as we come to this table, we pray that you would continue to be glorified through this service. We pray these things in your name. Amen.